Hello and welcome to the Sea of Startups, where we dive into the stories behind the startups in Southeast Asia. I'm your host, Kevin Brocklin, Managing Partner of Indelible Ventures. Now, if you're a founder or funder looking to learn more about what drives the startups in Southeast Asia, this podcast is for you. We're about to sit down with founders to uncover the unique insights into the origins and motivations behind launching their startups. We'll uncover the stories behind the struggles, the ups, the downs guided from the view of an entrepreneur. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's show. All right. I am very excited today because I have Francesca Chia, the co-founder of GoGet. For those of you who do not know, GoGet is a technology platform connecting businesses to an on-demand workforce of verified workers called GoGetters. Thank you very much for being here with me today, Francesca. Thanks so much, Kevin. Excited to be here. So, I'm always interested to know from every founder that I meet, what is the founding story? So take me back to the origin. What was the impetus in order to launch GoGet? So I would say one word, food. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So in Malaysia, I think we all talk about food a lot. Um, And uh, between the other co-founders and I, we would chit-chat and we all had full-time jobs. So we were really not just gunning for starting a a company actually at that point. So we really were accidental entrepreneurs. But we would um, meet up in cafes or restaurants and every week and just escape our minds with ideas. Um, But one of the ideas that we said is, oh, you know, it'd be really good if we know where to go every time. A really good platform that tells us like the best places to eat so that we could just meet up at the, the top places. But then we quickly realized that um, Malaysians love food so much that that is not even a problem. Most people know exactly where their favorite nasi lemak is. Um, they know where their favorite chao kway teow is. Um, and they're talking about the next dish uh, or the next meal at the current, uh, uh, like a meal before it, right? While they're eating lunch. Um, So uh, when we actually thought, well, you know, Malaysia doesn't have platforms like Yelp or Hungry Go Where, then we should really do a local platform. Um, And we believe that the mobile phone was really starting to pick up in terms of the smartphone technology getting more affordable. But um, the moment we did just a few questions and research with some users, they, they said, oh, well, I don't really need a platform like that. What's more annoying is actually the pains of getting into the traffic jams in KL, trying to get my favorite nasi lemak and then losing my parking. And then um, it's really tough for me to do this all under my one hour lunch break in the office. And we said, oh, so the pain is not where to go, but the pain is actually how to get the items that you wanted. Um, And then we realized the 80-20 rule. Um, 80% of what we kind of do or, or look for restaurants kind of go to the same 20% area. So when you're sitting in a meeting and you're urgently wanting your favorite noodle, like chances are someone is there. So we thought with that smartphone that's going to be in, behind everyone's back pocket, I'm sure we could crowdsource that message and just send it to the city and say, hey, anybody sitting in Village Park, would you like to pick up my food and deliver it? Um, and then we realized that we could create a community of people helping each other out just by being connected in an open platform. Um, And the origins of GoGet then started with going, well, you don't need to just pick up food. You could actually help someone 
pick up their business cards on the way back from Klang and bring it into the city to helping them do a task. So it was an open platform at the beginning um, in 2014 where people could post up any errand, any delivery, and it would go up to the community and people would do it to help each other out. That was it. Okay, so it sounds it sounds quite consumer centric. I mean, there, there's there's the initial idea around food, and that and then that migrating to the additional tasks that individuals uh, may need to accomplish. How did that then evolve into looking at enterprises as a key uh, as a key demand uh, yes, source? Sure. So this came about when um, we had ran the company for about one year in, and um, we were starting to look at actually monetizing. Um, And the moment we started monetizing, which is taking a cut from all these jobs, um, we quickly realized that there were power users. So when we looked into our database, there were users that would use um, a go-getter or 20 go-getters in a single day. And that would be really odd at first because we were like, oh, why would someone book a go-getter, book 20 of them just between 12 o'clock and 2 p.m.? And the location was at her house. So we were like, oh, this is a bit odd. So we called up this customer and we said, hey, um, and her name is Ili. She's actually a famous chef. Um, So uh, she had a company called Dish by Ili where she would make dishes, put them in beautiful tiffins and send them out to offices as lunch boxes and uh, she said oh yes i use your go-getters to help me in the kitchen um maybe chopping onions and then they also deliver my tiffins and i said oh you are using it for your business and she said yes i i said well what did you do before this she goes well i wouldn't be able to sell that many tiffins and now i can because i can just focus in the kitchen and everyone else can deliver them and help me in the kitchen so i said wow you must have a lot of difficulty using our app because we didn't build it for 20 jobs at the same time. And she goes, yes, it's absolutely horrible. (laughs) So we ended up going, wow, um, what do you need then for this to work? Um, So she said, well, I need a dashboard. I need to be able to use the same guy the next day. He knows my routine. I need insurance. I would like a guarantee. So I would like payments to be done easily. So we literally went down that route and just started building dashboards. We have guarantees, we have insurance, we have um, elite go-getters, we have favorite go-getters for them. Um, and that's how GoGet Business was born, actually. So it was really from looking into our power users. Um, and that, at that time, we just had 50 really, really strong accounts. And we just converted these 50 into business accounts and Within a year and a half, we broke even as a business purely because of GoGet Business. Yeah, that, that's that's a, that's a really interesting evolution because it, you know you you kind of take some of the edge use cases of those power users and then come to the realization that there's a lot more depth if you explore that a little bit further because it's not even purpose built for those power users. So what could the power be unlocked? So I'm curious with those other 50, because you highlighted the one, the other 50 were along the same sort of lines where it was kind of a seemingly random style of usage that you then had to explore a little bit more deeply? Well, it was, so similarly, then we had La Juiceria, who was then just starting off also and we needed help um, with extra workers. And so that's how they were one of our top clients as well that started off Go Get Business. Um, we've been working with Bloom this so until t- today, for example, they use go-getters to also pack their flowers. 
Um, and it's always been interesting when we see startups that, that kind of kick off in the community and when they uh, also need to start growing, they, they really rely on uh, that on-demand workforce. So SoCar, I'm sure you guys see that mm-hmm. car rental company going around in KL and we actually are the parkers. So we repark their cars actually. Um, so people don't know, but yeah, GoGetters kind of like, uh, you know, would help them park their cars and we move them back to the right. Um, redistribute them is actually what we call it. Redistribute their cars. So it's really a wide range. Um, it could not just be FMB, it could be a completely different industry as well. So let me flip to the other side of this equation, because this is getting the realization of the demand side. On yes. the supply side, it's really community driven in order to get yes. enough of these go-getters onto the platform. How did you tackle that in the early days? And how has that evolved as you switched to enterprise? In the early days, our first thing we always made clear was actually how we treated and branded the go-getters. Um, that is actually why we call them go-getters and not, um, let's say, delivery or promoters or waiters. We really call them go-getters because we really wanted them to firstly be proud of uh, what they did, did, deliver a service that was above and beyond, but um, and, and change that kind of service industry or stigma that we have. Um, and uh, so that's really firstly, it, it went into how our website looked, it went into how we recruited, it went into how we would brand the, the merchandise and make it look exciting. Um, and uh, like our t-shirts, for example, we wanted them to make sure you wore them actually when you went out instead of you wore them only when um, those branded t-shirts where you wear them only in pajamas. So we worked with the designer to even make sure these t-shirts were really, um, really great. And, um, and then what we first did was just really ask around um, our network to say, hey, did you want to be a go-getter? And we started it very organically through social media. Um, and we just put out posts to say, anybody want to earn a little bit extra, but also help out the community, like we're here. And um, and we would get people who were interested to, to sign up. And at that point, we would, we would actually verify them manually one by one and uh, physically. And I remember that would be, you know, um, people walking in um, and it would range from someone that drove a VW. I remember and he, he drove a VW and he parked the car and he came in and was like, okay, I want to be a go-getter. And I was like, that was not the profile I expected. Right? And then he was like, oh, I work in a bank, but um, I'm like events and I finish nine to five and I have nothing in the evening. I'd love to just earn a little bit more and help people out. And I just realized this is more than just for people to earn. This is actually also for people to have a different lifestyle, meet people, network, and build a, build like some community. And then we would have mothers come in with like, she was carrying a young child and she was like, oh, I've been out of the workforce for four years, taking care of my kids. And now I want to kind of have a flexible job to take care of my kids, but still kind of earn. So I need to do this. And I was like, wow, um, fully educated, university graduate, very intelligent, um, just wanted flexibility. Then we had someone else that used to work in a petrol station and just wanted to earn a little bit more as well. And um, and with GoGet, he could do it with a lot more ease than standing on his feet, two feet, the whole you know 18 hours in that day, right? So we had a wide range of people kind of walk in and it was really exciting to start seeing that community start building. And I'm I'm curious. Was was there any 
resistance or misconceptions? Because this is getting back to the early days of when the terminology of like gig work and gig oh, yeah. economy was getting no, there started. Was no, there was no, I don't even think people use the word gig work, to be honest. Um, <laughs> It was still, are you sure I would use a stranger to do my job? That was the word that they would use, stranger, I think. Um, and I actually, I remember going, well, do you know your pizza delivery boy? And then they were like, oh, good point. I was like, all right. So there's a form of how Pizza Hut has verified that person and you trust that brand and this pizza boy can deliver to your house. And I said, well, it's the same thing. We verify the go-getters. We do KYC. We also train them. And then they can do the task for you. So there was a lot of trust building initially. And we did a lot of um, we did a lot of photos of real people. And we put that on, on social media so that we could build that trust bit by bit. And then we did a lot of partnerships, actually, with a lot of brands so that they would associate that, oh, if we partner with this brand, it must be safe. Um, so we would try uh, to do a lot of partnerships. So that really, really helped. But yes, initially, I think um, a lot of people were just wondering, what is this? It is odd. Um, even getting into a, back then it was a my taxi and an Uber. That was, uh, at that stage, it was very, it was like, are you sure? Is that safe? <laughs> right. And that was, that was a year we rolled out as well. Yeah, there's there's quite a few of those stories. Whether whether it's whether it's Uber, my taxi, Airbnb, all yeah. of these ones where it always kind of came into that. Should I trust a stranger? So it's really yeah. interesting how you were able to tackle that through branding, through verification, through training. I want to dig a little bit onto the verification. What? How deep do you end up going, and how do you verify among skill sets, for example? Because there is a wide variety as far as the tasks and requirements that uh, your customers are demanding, right? Correct. Yes. So we do have a range now from logistics operations to sales admin and um, sales and marketing and admin. Um, our verification starts really firstly with an interest form, their identification um, also, which is then linked to an identification check. So they do have to upload their IDs, a profile photo, and we do a, a mapping of that. And so uh, with after they pass that uh, identification check, they also, or they submit their identity, um, they also go through what we call a go-get training. So there is a training module. There is also a question and answers for them to pass. They actually can't get through if they don't answer the Q&A. And after they do that, um, they actually uh, go through what we would say is kind of being a, a newly verified go-getter. Um, so in our training, we have included community principles, the values that we stand by, what delivers a good job, how to kind of navigate the application. Um, and the kind of jobs that we do is really uh, what we call non-executive. So uh, it, it also is non-certified. Uh, so for example, um, it, it's, not, it's not like a plumber or an air conditioning cleaner. They do need to go through a certification for them to actually become a plumber. Um, so we're not in terms of those certified services, uh, therefore jobs on GoGet should be anybody who has the ability to just kind of show up, you give them instructions, they should be able to do them. So our main aim is to make sure we teach them to have good attitude, ask questions, take initiative, show up on time, be presentable. These are the key things that we think are the traits that really empower them to be verified and good. 
Okay. And it's, 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 it's a lot of soft skills. It's not necessarily training on the hard skills itself. It's more on maintaining service level quality, uh, aside from kind of the functional capacity, I guess. Correct. Correct. Okay. You kind of prepare them to learn how to fish, then give them the fish. Mm. Yeah. Okay. And so one of the things that I'd be quite curious on is that when you look at these sorts of activities, they're fairly localized. Most of them, um, there's a, there's a, there's a concentration of where uh, businesses areas are. There's a concentration of residential areas. So when you're thinking about the concentration of commercial zones, is there a necessity in order to do matching of geography of the supply side, the go-getters versus where your demand side, your clients are coming from? And how do you balance that logistically? For sure. So it actually is more linked towards how urgent the job needs to be fulfilled. So if the job needs to be fulfilled within 20 minutes, we really look at the nearest go-getter. Um, and therefore that impacts the blasting mechanism, the way we uh, allocate the job. It impacts kind of what kind of people, what kind of, uh, which go-getters are able to even take the job. So for obvious reason, if a job needs to start in KL right uh, in 20 minutes, there's no way someone in Penang should be able to see or take that job, right? So um, it, it does impact those kind of visibilities and ability to take it. And we'll have like a block um, in the system to not allow impossible situations, essentially. Um, but besides that, if it's not on demand, we're looking at um, data such as what kind of jobs they prefer. Um, that's one of the biggest things. We basically take in a lot of preferences and really look at matching them um, and empowering the self-discovery uh, part of the app so they can self-discover jobs on their own. Very similar to almost kind of you searching, you know, in a search engine kind of jobs that you want. We're really looking at something like that too. Okay. Okay. And so you mentioned uh, you mentioned Penang. Are you also in Penang? And how was the experience of expanding outside of KL? Because essentially, I imagine you have to recreate community of go-getters and you have to recreate a set of enterprise clients as well. How was that experience? Yes, yes. So we work with clients that have multiple cities coverage. So that's really helpful because they know it's in KL and they'll know how to work with us in Penang and JV. And that's our initial set of clients. The second one is, of course, like when we're actually in those cities, yeah, we do um, we do create the onboarding. Um, and so the onboarding and verification of supply is all online. So that allows us to actually scale within those cities actually quite easily. Um, and we still offer very similar um, incentives, programs, engagement programs that are all offered in KL are also offered in JP and Penang so that we can keep building that community. Okay, okay. And so another thing, digging into this, and, I, and I, I'm, dwell, I'm dwelling on the balance of the supply and demand side, but when, when in most marketplace models where there's some sort of matching going on, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's, there's oftentimes, and it's not a, a one size fits all, but there's some sort of ratio of matching between how much demand is out there versus how much supply. So that if I go on and I'm a go-getter, that I don't have to wait necessarily two weeks before I get my first job, there's enough demand. So how do you look at that from an operational standpoint to make sure that you're not scaling up the go-getters too fast or that you're not scaling up the enterprise demand side of it too fast and keeping Mm. that nice balanced ratio? Yeah, sure. So, of course, you you have success metrics. 
Um, and these are key, key performance indicators that kind of indicate how well the match is going. So we can look at match rate, match speed, um, because obviously the chances that a job is being fulfilled, if it's being done well, um, then it's a good, it's, it's a relatively good ratio. We look at also funnel dropouts, um, if people are dropping out um, because they're not getting the jobs that they need. And then we also look at whether or not um, on different work scope level. Um, so for example, we can break it down in terms of, well, for a promoter job or for a kitchen helper job, what is the application rate and how does that compare with the other uh, type of jobs? So we can see it on a relativity scale and say, oh, we probably need to ramp up on um, go-getters that specifically focus on, let's say, um, sales callers because we need more sales callers um, because we're looking at the application rate and it's lower than the kitchen helpers. So we use that to really figure out our targeted um, acquisition campaigns for the supply side as well. Okay. So you're constantly reviewing the metrics and, and leveraging yeah. the insights from that in order to drive the activities on, on both yeah, sides. A lot of data. Yeah. How, how has this function evolved over time? Like if you were to look back at yourself a couple of years ago, what are some of the main learnings if you if you looked in hindsight of the lessons and the and the and the and the difficult process in order to get where you are today in that level of analysis? Mm. Well, I think one of the for me, one of the biggest lessons that I've recently learned is that we are so heavily looking on a day-to-day basis or week to week or month to month, and we're constantly kind of optimizing on um, the data that we see. But uh, sometimes it's really useful after you spend like a year doing that um, to really step back and then take a take a look at what's really um, critical, mission critical for the platform overall, um, instead of optimizing on a micro level. So I think what is important is also to just step back and, and take a look at the larger vision of the product and, um, and just prioritize because we could always be optimizing and improving on every part of the app, but it's important to just go, well, what is the three things we do need to do by the end of this year? So um, yeah, I think that's my biggest lesson. So I'm curious then, since you, ha- since you referenced three things you need to do by the end of the year, what are those and how do you actually go through the process? And so I think most founders out there oftentimes struggle in creating the focus on that small list because there's always so many things that are in the head. Yeah. How, what's the process that you came up with and how and what are those? Uh, so we actually do uh, what we call bottom-up and top-down to, to get both uh, perspectives. So bottom-up is not only f- we expect the, the individual functions to really know the pains of their, their, their section of the community or the platform, right? So, for example, the demand side, the supply side, or the operation side, they would know the pains on the ground. Um, and it's their, it's their job to really be close to the pains of the users and then looking at their metrics. So that's the bottom up first for them going, hey, here are all the pains, but these are the three pains that are really important for us to solve. And then top down is we also then go, well, what's the vision though of the company, right? Where are we heading? What, what, what space are we targeting and where is that market? Um, and then we kind of bring them both together and then we kind of create what we call a product vision. And so... Uh, we do a product PR, for example, a press release that would be released in the next three years, right? And um, or two years. So we, we, we do one year, three years, and you could do even five years. And you go, okay, well, what's in that product release, right? I mean, product press release. Um, 
And uh, we write that out as if it's being published in very, with a lot of detail, right? And then we translate that actually into, well, what does that actually mean for us to do on a roadmap level? Um, and then it's it's really into, we do OKRs, so it's into the quarters. We're looking at how we're achieving those on a metrics level um, and we're tracking on them and then just checking back, being a, one of our values here is being adaptive. So we do need to adapt to that plan if we do see uh, things are not going the, the right way and then adjust it. Um, and that's that's really how we come up with those those focus areas, yeah. Yeah, I, I I love that. I love the combination of a bottom-up, top-down approach, and I love the the forward-looking three years from now, the PR press release, and then yeah. kind of working backwards of what do, what are the steps along the process in order to get there. Yeah. Now, I'm curious when you talk about regularly reviewing these because feedback loops are extremely important so that yeah. you can maintain efficiency and make sure that you're not going down the wrong path for too long. Yeah. What's the frequency of those reviews? And how do you incorporate the required adjustments when thinking about the pathway to that three-year press release? So we, we, we use the, the framework of OKRs, which I think most people do probably know mm. what those are. So objective key results. So um, we run it on a semester level, though. We don't run it on a, on a monthly level or a quarterly level. Actually, semesters for us is every four months. Um, and, and But within the four months, you're already tracking how your, your key results are performing, right, based on your initiatives. So um, I think uh, on a working level, you could be looking at that, over, obviously, uh, twice a month to even once a month. And then at the end of the quarter, what's really key, uh, I mean, the semester is really about what, what do we learn about the business at the end of the quarter? We have a big reflection time to go, well, what, um, what are the key insights um, that through doing this OKR this semester that we've learned more about how this business actually works. And from those debriefs, we actually then go, well, then how does that impact next quarter's OKRs? And then we write the OKRs based on those learnings. Okay, okay. Yeah. And so within, within those periodic reviews, do, do you ever have to balance? Because one of the, one of the things that I oftentimes hear is that different department heads have kind of these competing visions of what should be prioritized. So when you're doing these sort of reviews, how do you balance kind of the com competition amongst, I don't want to really use the word competition, but the differing points of views on prioritization amongst different department heads? Yeah, I think this is a problem that exists with everyone because resources are finite. Mm. And essentially, that's what you're talking about, right? When you have a finite resources, how do you then decide on the priorities? Um, I honestly think that's the job of that's a job of managers. And that's the job. Of, that's also my job. I really need to look at all um, the requests that's coming in. They can try their best to obviously say this is what they need. But in the end, I do need to look at what the company really does require. Um, look at that vision, um, make a call, and the decision then on prioritization then helps uh, bring it together. I do think sometimes just setting that direction is really key for, for leaders, right? So that in the end, everyone kind of brings together. But of course, I think when you communicate that, you do need to communicate why, why you chose those priorities um, over others. Um, and yeah, and the key is hopefully you, you have to have a team that understands that priorities, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then okay. ideally, I, ch I should choose things that deliver results. So, so if you get a quarter or two where at least the results come in, you're like, that's probably why we chose that, right? So we need to build that trust. It's over time, and it's over like that that the professional relationship that we have. 
Okay. Okay. I'm curious on the talent side because expanding on kind of like the job of the managers and, you know, yeah. for your capability in order to do this bottom-up analysis as well, yeah. it requires a, la- a layer of talent at many different tiers of the organization. So when you think about creating an organization, building a team, training them, getting them unified around a vision, how has your hiring internal processes how has that evolved over time massively oh my goodness (laughs) i don't even know where to start that process is so different today um to give you a sense though a fun fact about 60 percent of our employees like full-time and go get our go-getters first um before they're go get in the company um so we do hire from the communities because they really do believe in the product first before coming in and wanting to build it so it's almost like go get is kind of built by the community because 60 percent of them is actually the community um and we have a motto that says you do need to be a go-getter or and a poster you need to touch and feel the product um because if you don't then it's really hard for you to empathize with kind of what needs to be built and um so early days it really was uh, it was attracting people with with probably our network, um, bringing them in, um, doing interviews. We, we used to even run what we would call um, trial days. They get to actually um, we we think it's a two way two way two way highway, right? So they're interviewing us the same way as we're interviewing them. So we give them a full day of how a life in GoGet would be, and at the end of the day, we see also whether or not they've had a good time and. They've kind of interacted well with this. So that was one thing we used to do. But now, actually, we've scaled our hiring process in a way where um, we incorporate some of our key values that we're kind of looking for in that process. Um, And we have a cultural lunch. So the cultural values that we look for is kind of held by us meeting up with them for for lunch. And we actually do just kind of see whether it's a good fit. Um, That's really, really, really important for us uh, beside the job fit. Um, and once they come in, we have something called how do we set that candidate up for success for their first three months. So we put them up with a buddy. We have cultural onboarding. We have actual rotations around the, the different departments. Um, and um, we really kind of just make sure that they have a check in every month to make sure that they're kind of on track to being successful. So. Okay, yeah. so, so you have the job fit, the culture fit, and then really ramping up the onboarding process to make sure that you're leading them towards success. Is there much of a difference depending upon functional area? So if, if somebody's coming into tech team versus operations versus community, is there much of a difference between how you approach that? And I, I ask that primarily because some roles are naturally introverts versus some roles are naturally extroverts. Yeah, we actually don't. We make them go all through the same one um, purely because we believe like, well, you know, introverts and extroverts actually can, can function really well, to, uh, you know, on, on any task. I feel it's just that it, it just they, they get energy from different sources. Um, but I would say, um, you know, it's so important, especially for anyone working in any department for them to see the rotations on other departments so that they will be able to go, ah, I now know what they do, but I also now know why uh, I'm being asked to do this because of the larger picture. So they really understand the business after rotations. Um, so we, we make, even if you're an engineer, you rotate into marketing. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah this that's, that's fantastic. I, I, I want to wrap up with a couple of closing questions here. And so the first one is, what is the tech tool that you cannot live without? I think that was so easy for me, actually, it's Slack. 
there's absolutely no way we would function without Slack. <laughs> uh, Slack does everything for us, right? Um, oh, we run projects on Slack. We communicate on Slack. We do all our huddles on Slack. Um, we, uh, we, we run a remote-friendly uh, culture and, and workplace. So we do allow people to work from anywhere. Um, so having Slack is absolutely important for us. Yeah, it's amazing how deeply it has integrated itself into the work life of so many people yes. in, in a relatively short amount of time. Um, the second question. So if you were to talk to another founder out there that's just getting started, what is the biggest piece of advice that you would offer? Oh, I always say the same piece of advice. It never changes. Um, so I apologize if this has been repeated for other people, but um, it's the best advice that I would give and I've been given and, and I experience and I 1000% believe in. Um, I would say if you're just about to start a company, I would say really, really ensure you care about the pain that you're going to solve. Genuinely care about it because if it's only just, I kind of want to solve it or I think the solution is cool, that's not about the pain, right? Um, solution is cool is about the solution. You need to really care about what is the pain that you're solving because um, when the going gets tough, when when you've been beaten on the ground and you're, you know, your face is bleeding and you're at the bottom of the, the boxing ring because of all the toughness of what goes through as a founder, mm. you need to know, you need to have something that's going to pull you back up and that has to come from internally. And if you cared about the problem, you will stand back up and try to fight again. But if you kind of superficially like the solution or you kind of superficially kind of wanted to solve the problem, that may not be enough for you to stand back up. All right. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, building a startup, as I'm sure you can attest to, it's incredibly hard. There yeah. are days where you just cannot leave the office. You just can't stop because there's, you know, there's, there's, there's the, there's the saying there's fire burning. When are you going to go home? You have to choose which one you're going to put out. You have to choose which one you're going to let keep burning the amount of, you know, emotions, mental, all of these different yeah. layers of baggage. It's incredibly hard. If you don't have the level of passion, if you don't have the interest, if you don't have that internal drive, I, I get 100% what you're saying. And even to yeah. get additional supporters, like if you want to jump on the VC funding cycle, you know, it's hard to get somebody to step behind you if you're not yeah. just demonstrating all of that same uh, grit and passion. Yes, yes, yeah. You need to really care about this. This has to touch you to the core, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So any founders out there listening, if you do not have the passion in what you are doing, you need to rethink or develop it because it is incredibly hard to get from A to Z. Yep. Yep. Perfect. This was fantastic, Francesca. There were a lot of great pieces of advice and information that came out of this. I really appreciate you being here with me. And bef But before I let you go, if anyone wants to get in touch with you or learn more about GoGet, how can they get in touch? Well, thanks so much. Yeah, so they can go to goget.my, just the website URL. Um, or they can check us out on LinkedIn. It's just go get, um, and uh, you can just check us out and message us there. If we are, we are always looking for great people as well. So um, check out what kind of job availabilities we have as well. That'd be amazing. Okay, perfect. Thank you very much, Francesca.
Thank you. Thanks so much, Kevin. It was really great being on. All right, that wraps it up for another fantastic episode of The Sea of Startups. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend, go on to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It's the best way for us to get discovered and to have these startup stories reach a broader audience. If you have any suggestions or would like to get in touch, you can email me at kevin at indelible.vc. As always, I'm your host, Kevin Rockman from Indelible Ventures, and this is the Sea of Startups.